Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of the prophet Nehemiah, chapters 8, verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 10, found in the Old Testament section of our Bibles. Please join me for a prayer of illumination. Father God, we thank you that the rarest treasures of life are found in your word, your truth, and that's why we prize your word, Father, more than anything in this world. Nothing brings a soul such sweetness as seeking your living words. May we understand them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. All the people of Israel gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way and eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder for many of us, before today's reading, knew that this very popular phrase that we heard in the reading, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I wonder how many of us are aware that it came from the book of Nehemiah. What exactly does that phrase mean? The joy of the Lord is your strength. What did it mean for the people then? And what does it mean for the people now? Nehemiah, I want you to know, friends, is a very, very important book. It's an important book in Scripture because of its honesty, because of its truth and how it depicts this God who is sovereign, this God who is faithful, this God who keeps covenant. 
and never abandons the people under his care. And the book of Nehemiah bears that out in a wonderful way. You know, the 40-year reign of King David were years that some call the golden years. It represented the zenith of Israel's dominance and its religious and its political uh, sort of dominance in the world at that time. But as you and I know, leaders all die. Leaders all move on. And when King David died after 40 years as king, there was this slow, steady slide into chaos, into disunity, into spiritual rebellion, into desertion. And eventually all that David had stood for and built up got eclipsed by the rebellions of the people. But just to show you how loving God is, despite the many calls to repentance through God's prophets, God sent prophets calling the people back. And finally, in 701 BC, the Assyrians, led by a powerful king by the name of King Sennacherib, invaded the northern tribes where the ten tribes in the north resided. And he destroyed the worship center at Shiloh and he carted off those ten tribes, and uh, they never returned to the land. God sent even more messengers, urging God's people to change and repent and to turn from their idols and their rebellions, but to no avail. And the final blow came 145 years or so later, 586 B.C. The Babylonians came under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, and destroyed the last two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and removed the best and the brightest of Israel and took them to Babylon for 70 long years. And during this time, as you might imagine, Israel, Israel had a supply chain problem with joy. And we're dealing with that right now. We're talking about a supply chain supply. Uh, chain issues with various commodities, but one of the commodities that seem to be missing even in our world today is joy. No one had it. No one could buy it. You didn't hear the sounds of laughter, no sounds of wedding parties, no laughter, no dancing, no grand announcement of the birth of a child. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied these days, and he said these words, I will bring, as he spoke the word of God to the people, he said, I'll bring an end, bring an end, the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of the bride and the bridegroom in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for the land shall become a waste. Can you picture that? No joy. Seventy years have come and gone. And God raises up another powerful leader, a Persian king, by the name of Cyrus, who was mightier than Babylon, mightier than Nebuchadnezzar, and he overthrew the dominance of the Babylonians, and he had a different approach with these Jewish people and the exiles. He decided to release them so they could go back to their country and worship their God and build their temples and live and plant in their fields and he allows them to return to the land. And we would say, wow, that's a great thing, right? 
But when Nehemiah returns home, he finds devastation, poverty, and chaos, and disorder. He finds this heavy authoritarian rule over the people, abuse and ruin. But Nehemiah was a special person. He was a man of vision. He was a man of purpose. And so he was undaunted, and he decided to organize the people, and they rebuilt the wall. But here's the thing. Nehemiah's vision was not just to reconstruct the country's physical defenses. He wanted to revitalize the spiritual life of the people. And he and his leaders found, here's what they found. They found that rebuilding a joyless people is much more challenging, much more challenging. Who would have thought that than restoring walls and rebuilding edifices? So how did the people, how did the leaders help the people recover their joy, their emoji? How, 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 did, he, how did they help them? Well, I think what they did was at this point in the story, as you know, there, there is no temple. The temple has been destroyed. This is the first temple era. It's done. It's burnt. It's to the ground. And yet, here's what they did. They still gathered for worship. And I want to say to you this morning, never ever minimize what can happen when people gather for worship and the capacity of that moment in worship with all of God's people to elevate people, to lift them from the, from the low horizon, from the dungeons, and, and place them in heights, place them on the mountains of hope and joy. And that's what happened to these people. The, the, the people told Ezra, Ezra, bring, bring the book of the law. Can you imagine that? We want to hear God's word. And then what follows next is every, and I'm, and I'm being honest, I talk to a lot of pastors. What follows next is every pastor's dream, every church leader's dream. Men and women, boys and girls, gather together to hear God's word read. And so this idea of multi-generational worship, it's not a 20th century phenomenon. It's actually all the way back to the, to the 5th century, 5th century BC, multi-generational worship gathering. And then they read, listen to this, they read from the law from early in the morning till, till the middle of the day. The ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. When Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, watch this, all the people stood up. Now, we don't do that here, but I've been in churches where when I walk into the pulpit to read the Bible, all the people in the church stand up. They got it right here from the book of, from the book of Nehemiah. And watch this. These people were responsive. They were responsive. I mean, physically and audibly responsive. Because when Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, the people responded with, Amen. And you know, they weren't Baptists. They weren't Baptists. But they were responding, amen, amen, and they were lifting up their hands, and they weren't Pentecostals or Charismatics. They just got the joy of the Lord. And then they bowed their heads, and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And here we find 
the rationale for the practice of preaching as part of worship. You know, you, you, you have these doomsdayers out there who keep saying all oh, the day of preaching is done. People just want to hear a little, a little homily. People just want a little pick-me-up, and you, you just want to preach for about five minutes and because people don't have the ability to listen anymore. Not so, not so, not so here. But here's where you find the rationale for preaching. And so they read from the book of the law of God with interpretation, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And even after Ezra told them that this day is holy, and, and some scholars believe that this was, they were trying to recapture the festivals, and this may have been the Feast of Trumpets. It was supposed to be a time of joy, a time of celebration, a time of lots and lots of big eating. It was almost like their, their Thanksgiving. That was the day. It was a day that was holy to the Lord. Ezra said, don't mourn, don't weep. We read in verse 9 that the people wept when they heard the words of the law, and then he's, he dismisses them with a benediction, and I've never had a benediction like this, but I'm going to try it someday. I'm going to end the service and say, okay, guys, go on home and drink some wine and eat the fat and just have a good time. And if you if, 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 check with your neighbor, make sure if they don't have anything, you go give them some, because this is a day of joy. And yet we read that the people kept mourning and, and Ezra said, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he sent the people home, and they were still weeping. And I keep asking myself the question, as I've been pondering this, is why are they weeping? And I have a few thoughts. Maybe I could be wrong, and I'm willing to be, to be corrected. One of the things about first prayers, whenever I preach, there's always somebody out there who comes back and says, but pastor, you missed this. And I'm all ears because I want to learn. But here's what I think is going on. I think the reason why they were weeping, it's because God's word was reaching their hearts in a very deep and in a very personal way. This is after 70 years of all kinds of mistakes and all the mistakes that their fathers had made, and they began to grieve about their failures. God's word was touching their consciences. God's word was heightening their awareness of the ways in which they had disobeyed or even their Forebears are disobeyed and dishonored and ignored God. And when I read things like these, I always stand back and I say, God, only you can do that. Even as a parent, sometimes I want to see my children just jump at everything I say. And I keep reminding myself, Lord, only you can move people's hearts in this way. We can't do that. So the 17th century preacher William Bridge used a biblical illustration that was, it's been picked up, lots of people have used it. You see a similar kind of language in the book of James where the Bible is considered as a looking glass. So if you look in a mirror, you're going to see what? You're going to see maybe three things. You're going to see the mirror itself, the glass. You're going to see yourself, of course, because that's why you're looking in the mirror. But then you're going to see maybe behind you and around you the things that are in the room. And what I want you to hear this morning is that Scripture is like a mirror where we see in that mirror the record of, first of all, the nature of who God is as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But the reason why we look in the mirror, we look in the mirror to see how we look. Any dirt on the face? Clothes all intact? Without the mirror, we couldn't see ourselves. The people wept, I think, because of what they 
heard or saw in the reading of Scripture, and it was doing this to their lifestyle. Scripture was telling them, uh-uh, uh-uh, my people, you are going off the rails. Without this mirror, there would be no awareness, no awareness of their sinfulness. Had they not looked into the mirror of Scripture, they wouldn't have seen the revelation of the majesty of God, the bright light shining from God's holiness, revealing their impurity, God's faithfulness, challenging their disloyalty, God's compassion, God's compassion, even in the face of their selfishness. And yet, despite the seriousness of their sin, the leaders urged the people, dry your tears, dry your tears. This is not a day for weeping. Because the scripture is not just about this condemning and telling you you're no good, you should, you're, you're like a worm. That's not all the scripture is doing here. The scripture points out our sin, but the good news of God's word is that no matter how far you've strayed off the reservation, no matter how, how many mistakes you've made in your life, no matter how you have messed up in your relationships with people, the message, the drum-beating message of Scripture is that there is a joyful God who is calling you home. So rejoice. The joy of the Lord, not the anger of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. God isn't angry. God is joyful. God is rejoicing over you. Let that be your strength. In other words, let that be the basis for your hope. Wonderful verse. If you have your Bibles or you can see it on the screen, it's from Psalm 16 and verse 11. And I think this is how you and I find our joy. We go to God and we say these words to God. You, Lord, show me the path of life. And then watch this now, in your presence. That's where it comes from. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this business of joy, friends, it is serious, serious business, which is why our congregation lists it at the very center of our five defining values. If you look at it on the screen, you can see it. Joy is an indispensable quality of life. I, it, it's, it's just, if you're going to go through this life, you're going to need it. Joy. The other values there are pretty powerful stuff, and we've talked about some of them before already. Christ-like love and spirit-filled and scriptural, and next Sunday, Lord's willing, we'll talk about what it means to be a compassionate church. But today, it's the joyful church. So we've made up these amazing magnets, and I've been forcing them. Like, uh, I don't know, some of the folks say, what's Pastor Ray giving me this for? I've been forcing them on folks who are here this morning, and we have them at the front desk, it's a magnet. You could take it with you, stick it on your, your file cabinet, if you people still have those, and stick it on your refrigerator, and just remind yourself, this is what we're aiming for. This is who we want to be. This is what we want to be known for. This is how we want to behave. We want to be a church, a people who are joyful. So, if you ever stop by the church, make sure to grab one. But I want you to know this morning, we're not the only ones who are concerned about the business of joy. The question we're going to ask ourselves, though, is, is there a difference between joy and happiness? And I mean, that's the age-old question. Did you know 
And to answer that question, let me tell you something else. Did you know that each year the United Nations publishes a report called the World's Happiness Report? Did you know that? And in 2021, I'll tell you the five happiest countries in the world. Number one was Finland. Finland. And they've been number one as the happiest country in the world for four years in a row followed by Denmark, and then Switzerland, Iceland, the Netherlands. Now, where did America fall? That was my question as I read through the report. Well, America came in 19th. We're the, one of the richest countries in the world, and we cracked 19. So what's Finland doing? You could look at that graph, and you could see some of the things that are there. The Happiness Report says that they show healthy measures in areas of social support, personal freedom, gross domestic product, low levels of corruption. Finland ranked very high on the measures of mutual trust that have helped to protect lives. This is serious now, and livelihoods during the pandemic. A nation of only 5.5 million people, and yet they have managed far better than all of Europe in fact, far better than the world during the pandemic. They just, they had only, during 2021, 2020, 2021, 70,000 cases of infection, infections, and only 805 people died. I think I'm going to Finland. But this is also very serious. And this just blows me away, and I don't want to get into all the reasons why this bothers me so much. Washington Post came out with an article reporting that Finland, four years in a row, happiest nation in the world, also has one of the world's highest suicide rates. And I had to read that several times. And I said, how can that be? And they gave various reasons. But here's what I'm concluding. Having strong social support, having personal freedoms, high gross domestic uh, GDP, excellent, excellent health care, good-paying jobs, low levels of corruption, indeed can bring happiness. But does it produce joy to mitigate despair? So here's what I believe. I believe that happiness is a derivative of joy. Happiness is conditioned by by favorable events. And sometimes those events don't last. You go to some of the poorer countries in the world, or you meet people in our community, people in our church, who are going through some very, very dark times. I can th my mind, as, as I say these words, I see the faces of people right here in this church who are going through some valley experiences, and yet they're joyful. And I want you somehow to, to make a, a, a separation between what joy and joyful means with what happiness and happy circumstances mean, because it is possible, even as you are in the valley, to be joyful. If you don't believe me, go ahead and read the words of Habakkuk. And he says the even if, even if there's no food, even if there are no flocks, even if the stock market crashes, even if I don't have any money, even if I lose my job, Habakkuk says, yet I will be joyful in the Lord. Joy is sort of this, 
this, this agent that fights despair. And these people, instead of being crushed and despondent, they're exhibiting joy. How is that possible? Because joy is from God. God, one of the communicable attributes of God, and I love to say that word. You know, it's one of the words I learned in seminary, and I still love to use it. A communicable attribute, especially being in a, in a, in a pandemic where we don't want for these diseases to be communicated to us. One of the communicable attributes of God we want communicated is this attribute of joy. God is a joyful being. God is the most joyful being in the whole universe. And God takes delight in everything that God has made. And so if you are in God, you're in the presence of God, guess what? You are going to receive and live out and experience that communicable attribute of joy. Now, it's been on the screen a while, but take a look at what when we think about a joyful people here at First Press, this is what we have in mind. We have this sense of gladness and hope that comes from knowing that God loves us. Here at First Prayers, our joyfulness comes from this peace that exists regardless of circumstances. Our folks here at First Prayers are joyful because we have this full delight. We're full of delight for what God has done and will do in the world and in our lives. Look at this last slide that I have. I actually took this in my office over the week, took this picture. But, you know, every day, Pastor Amanda gave me a, a, a water bo bottle courtesy of the youth ministry, and it's exactly what I need because I, I drink a lot of water every day. I think about two or three of those every day. And so when I, when I run out, and at that time when I took the picture, it was empty, I would normally walk out just to get my steps in and go up to the second floor and the reason why I go to the second floor, we have two uh, filtered units where filtered water um, is to be found. One over in the SOC side and one on the second floor. So I go up to the second floor with my water bottle and I fill it up. And I sometimes will take a big uh, drink of it and fill it up some more, then go downstairs. But that one particular Friday, I was on the second floor. And, you know, on a Friday, if you come here on a Friday, one of the unmistakable aromas you will have when you walk into our building on a Friday is just this wonderful smell of good food being cooked. So that morning, of course, there was that savory smell, that wonderful smell of good food being cooked. But the other thing I heard coming from the kitchen that morning was the sweet sounds of laughter and conversation. And I kind of did one of these and looked and I could see people moving around in there and they were just kind of doing their thing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, every Friday, no matter how hot it is, no matter how cold it is, there is a group of servants of God who come to our church every Friday, and that's all they do. They prepare a meal for our homeless guests. And then on Saturday, a different group comes and take the food that was prepared on Friday, and they give it out to our community. And I heard last year that we gave away, keep that screen up there for a while, Jim, we gave away over 5,000 meals, 5,000 meals. After my water bottle was full, I just stood there for a while. No, I'll be honest, and, and I wasn't eavesdropping. In fact, I couldn't tell what they were talking about. It just sounded like they were having a rollicking time. 
These people had a job to do, friends, but they were doing it with joy. Joy was the background, music in the kitchen. Joy, not anger. Joy, not bitterness. Joy, not a begrudging spirit or a complaining spirit, but just joy, unmitigated joy. And you see, the reason why I'm stressing this is that when you are immersed in joy, you have the strength to carry on. Joy makes the burden lighter. Joy makes the challenges more bearable. Joy will carry you through any storm. And my prayer for us, my prayer for our staff, there's a wonderful verse, Psalm 100, that says, serve the Lord with gladness, some translations say. Serve the Lord with, with joy. Joy in your home, here at the church, in our ministries, as we walk about in Evanston and around Chicago, that we would be these transmitters of joy, the fruit of joy just pouring out from our lives because the Spirit of God lives within us. That is the dream I have for us. We want to be known as the joyful church. And that's why I love first prayers. I love you. I love our congregation. I love our staff. I am, listen, 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 listen. I am proud to be part of this community with all of our bumps and our bruises. We have gone through some tough years. You know the saying, we take a licking, but we keep on ticking. That's first prayers. We are a resilient people. We will never as long as I'm here, we will never wave the white flag of defeat. Our hope, our hope is rooted in this joyful God, not in our buildings. Those folks didn't have a building. But the joy of the Lord was their strength, not in our money. They didn't have any money. It's the joy of the Lord that keeps us going. And so what I would urge you to do, do your homework. I want you to go and do some research and say, how can the happiest nation in the world four years in a row have one of the highest suicide rates? We've got to think about that. We live on the North Shore where it's all about what you drive and what you wear and the letters you have behind your name and the size of your house. And some of these folks are miserable and dying in despair and in loneliness and in shame and in unforgiveness. And they're realizing that it's great to have money. Money can make you happy. You can go on great vacations, wear nice clothes, eat the best food, sleep in the best hotels. But the thing your money can't buy is joy. 2008. People were jumping off buildings when the stock market crashed. 1929, people were taking their lives when the stock market crashed. Why? Because their joy and their happiness was rooted in their stuff. I love this place because it's been a tough time for us. We've been going through a pandemic. Look at us. My voice is echoing as if I'm in some kind of cave. It's not bouncing off you. It's bouncing off empty pews. We want you here. We want to gather. We're going to, we're going to fight this together. We're going to go through this together. We're going to grow together. We're going to adapt together. We're going to stay in the game. And as we go through all that's before us in 2022, we're going to do it with the joy of the Lord as our strength. That's who we are.
And so first prayers, I close with this verse. One of my favorite verses from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 2, where the writer says, let us, let us fix our eyes. So I'm looking at the rose window with Jesus, kind of waving at me. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Don't miss this now. Who for the, who for the what? The joy. The joy that was set before him. Come on now. The joy. What did he do with the joy? He endured the cross. Huh? He disregarded its shame. And guess what? He has now taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Follow his step. He was the most joyful person. The Bible called him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yes, and that's life. But that joy kept him going. May that be true for you and for me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the joyful people of God online and right here say, we say amen.